I'm Jake Miller from the Educational Duct Tape Podcast, a part of the Education Podcast Network, just like the show you're listening to now. Shows on the network are individually owned and opinions expressed may not reflect those of others. Find other interesting education podcasts at edupodcastnetwork.com. Again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast, a proud member of the Education Podcast Network. My special guest today is David Osborne, who serves as the director of the Reinventing America Schools Project at the Progressive Policy Institute in Washington, D.C. Osborne is the author of seven books on public policy, including Reinventing America Schools, Creating a 21st Century Education System. The book examines the success of the charter schools movement in cities such as New Orleans, Denver, and Washington, D.C. Osborne previously served as a senior advisor to Vice President Al Gore and helped run the National Performance Review, often referred to by the vice president as his Reinventing Government Task Force. He was the chief author of the NPR report, which laid out the Clinton administration's reinvention agenda called by Time the most readable federal document in memory. In 2000, Osborne continued his role as an advisor during Al Gore's presidential campaign. It was a great honor to talk with David Osborne in this episode, and the goal was simply to have some dialogue on charter schools and try to better understand why this particular school model continues to face so much pushback and negativity from those entrenched within the status quo. For those of you that listen to this podcast, you know that my only goal is to share ideas and expert opinions from my guests on what we can do together to create better schools for kids. It does not mean that I'm promoting any one model over another, and I'm certainly not advocating for any political agendas on this podcast. But I am truly grateful to spend some time with David Osborne. He has an incredible background and wonderful insight into education reform. And this is certainly a conversation that we need to have if we're truly going to put kids first and think about new and innovative ways to reimagine schools. As always, be sure to share out this episode with the Reimagined Schools hashtag and be sure to like, follow, and subscribe wherever you find your podcast. My conversation with David Osborne begins right now. Hello again, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Reimagined Schools podcast. My special guest today is David Osborne, who brings expertise not only in the field of education reform, but he's also a public policy expert as the director of the Progressive Pol- Policy Institute's project on reinventing America's schools. He's also a former senior advisor to Vice President Al Gore. So big welcome to the show, David. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm delighted to have you, and uh, like, like I said, uh, you know, I, I've been blessed to talk to a lot of wonderful people on the reform side, but your work with, uh, with public policy and, and former Vice President Gore, uh, I just have great admiration for all the work that you've done. Thank you. Appreciate that. 
So if I could, I want to start on a little bit of a light note before we dive into some of the heavy stuff, but uh, kind of a funny story about my grandmother, who's no longer with us. She passed a few years ago. Her maiden name is Gore, and she's from Paris, Tennessee. And some of, some of my favorite conversations with my grandmother, she always talked about Cousin Al. And to this day, I have no idea if she was related at all, but she was such a fan of Cousin Al. So to kick things off, this question's kind of for her, as I know she's looking down on us today. But what are some of your fondest memories of working with the former vice president? Oh, boy. I have some fond ones. He was terrific. Um, you know, when he was giving campaign speeches, he was stiff and people – he stiff and kind of cold and people just didn't warm to him. But in person, he's the opposite. Uh, he's actually quite funny. Um, he's great to work with. Uh, I'll tell you one anecdote. He, he works really hard and he's very, very smart. We were, this was a project uh, that I helped start and run uh, in 1993, which was called the National Performance Review. Uh, it was inspired by a book I co-authored, Reinventing Government. And Gore usually referred to it as his Reinventing Government Task Force. Um, and it later became, they changed the name to the National Partnership for Reinventing Government. We had pulled together over 200 people to kind of scour the federal government and figure out ways to improve its performance and also trim the budget deficit at the same time. And part of my job, since I'm a writer, was to pull together a team of writers and turn our, you know, 1,000, 1,200 proposals into a document that would be compelling and that people would actually read. <laughs> and that was fun. We, we spent a month on it, uh, five of us working really hard. Um, it, Time magazine later called it the most readable federal document in memory. Of course, the, you know, the competition wasn't too stiff. But uh, the day Gore read our first draft, um, he, he stayed up all night to read it because he was busy with other things. This was early August 93. The budget was, was up. They were, it, it actually passed by one vote in the Senate, his vote in the middle of the night. So he, the guy was busy. Um, Stayed up all night to read it, met with us all morning. Uh, we didn't quite finish. He said, all right, uh, come back at 6 p.m. So we trooped back into his office at 6. Um, he hadn't slept for 36 hours. And <clears throat> we slogged through the rest of it, which some of the toughest issues, um, some of the biggest questions, like should we commit to a particular savings number? Should we commit to a number of reductions in, in uh, the number of jobs in the federal government? And uh, he stuck with it. We finally finished about 8 p.m. The other funny thing about that is that that morning, well, background, um, there, was a, there was a popular movie out at the time called Boys in the Hood, uh, which was about, I, f I forget who made it, uh, but it was, you know, it was kind of about guys in the ghetto. And Gore walks into the meeting room that morning, and he's got a report, and he says, 
he shuffles over and he's got this smile on his face and he says, I think I got it. I got the title. Lifting the hood. Because <laughs> that had been a phrase that uh, oh, the guy, the crazy guy from Texas, Ross Perot, who ran for president in 92, often talked about, we got to lift the hood of the federal government and fix it. <laughs> so, <laughs> But probably not a politically correct title for any kind of public document. No, it's not what we used. <laughs> but he... He he uh, he was fun to work with. He's a he's a wonderful human being, and everybody who's ever worked for him is completely mystified by what a poor campaigner he is. Mm. He's always been a poor campaigner. Every race he ever ran for anything. Mm. Um, who knows? Well, I know you've thought about this many times, and it is probably a tough question to answer, but. What do you think a Gore presidency would have looked like? I know one positive is we probably wouldn't have had no child left behind. Probably not. Um, we would not have gone to war in Iraq. Al Gore gave a major speech in the fall of 2002 saying, do not go to war in Iraq. We have to keep our eye on the ball in Afghanistan. That's where the problem is. Um, we would not have run huge deficits, which would not have fueled inflation in sectors that were protected from foreign competition, like housing um, and healthcare and colleges and universities. Um, we would not have taken a, the federal government would not have taken its eye off the ball in terms of regulating the financial markets. And I don't think we would have as a result, we wouldn't have had the same bubble in real estate, um, which of course caused the Great Recession when it burst. Um, I thought he would be a great president. He was kind of the opposite of Bill Clinton. Bill Clinton was the world's best campaigner, not the greatest executive because he, he wanted everybody to love him. He needed that. And when he had to make a tough decision where 45% were gonna be opposed, he, he, he hated that. He just, he would waffle in public. Gore was the opposite. Um, terrible campaigner, but, but very good at making decisions. Uh, really knew who he was, and I think would have been a successful executive. I think world history would be different yeah. had the Supreme Court not elected him five to four. Yeah. You know, as it relates to education policy, you know, you, know, you well know, as I do, that Edu public education has always been the political football. Even when Carter uh, created the Department of Education, you know, we've been through Nation at Risk, No Child Left Behind, Common Core, all these different initiatives. And we're going to start hearing more and more as the political season ramps up. Um, what do you think, from a public policy perspective, sh what role should the government play in leading the charge to reform public education, if any? The federal government? Yeah. Well, it shouldn't have a huge role. I mean, our constitution leaves education to the states. The states write the rules on public education and they provide most, a lot of the funding along with localities. Uh, the federal government provides, I think, a little less than 10% of the funding for public education in this country. But ever since the 1960s, it has increasingly played a role by passing federal education bills um, 
of which No Child Left Behind was one. Um, I think that the federal government should try to help fund uh, public education for low-income kids, as it does with Title I, because the states and districts with the least capacity to raise tax money are where the lowest income kids are. Mm -hmm. And so trying to equalize that, to create more equal opportunity is a very legitimate role. Um, and the states, the federal government should encourage the states to do what works for children. Uh, you know, President Obama pushed uh, something called Race to the Top, which basically said, here's some recovery money, a lot of money. Um, if you do these things, you can compete for it. If you embrace world-class academic standards, uh, if you quit putting caps on the number of charter schools in your state, and I'm blanking on what the third, the third one was. Oh, if you uh, push teacher evaluation systems that put at least half the weight on test scores, um, on academic performance of the children, uh, then you can compete for this money. I think that third one was a mistake, but um, the other two I think were, were quite constructive. So the federal government can create incentives, encourage states uh, and localities to do what has been proven to work for kids. But most of the action is and should be at the state and local level. Well, you know, we, we can both agree that we've been stuck in this traditional industrialized model that no longer serves kids uh, and really does not prepare them from the job, for the job skills that they're going to need for today. And I know that's one of the reasons you're passionate about your work and your book, Reinventing America's Schools, Creating a 21st Century Education System, we're going to talk about in just a few minutes. But as I talk to folks that are experts in the, in the field of education reform, they often point to state legislatures or the federal government as being the greatest barrier to school innovation. Is that a fair assessment or do you think that's just an excuse? I don't think the federal government is, a, is the greatest barrier by any means. I think state legislatures, state legislatures write the rules. And many of those rules create barriers to innovation. Um, so in that sense, state legislators are the gatekeepers. They, they create the barriers and they can take away barriers. Uh, so they, they're the most important players. People don't realize that. They think it's all, you know, the local school board and the school district, but, but they're planned by the rules written by state legislators. Right. And it can be uh, challenging. You know, you want to you want to create innovative new ideas, but you're really uh, handcuffed by a lot of these regulations that uh, are made by a lot of people that I mean, their only school experiences when they were a student themselves. So that can also be frustrating that that state legislatures don't have the the training or the necessary skills to make some of these decisions that really have an adverse impact on the growth of a school district. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And on top of that, so many people have this instinct that there's one answer. There's one right way to educate children. And boy, if, if this method of teaching reading works, let's legislate it. Let's require everybody to do it. The truth is, 
you know, psychologists have proven kids learn in different ways. They have different learning styles. We all know they come from very different socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, nowadays, they speak different languages, in, at least in the urban districts where a lot of immigrants live. Um, you can't treat them all the same. You, it, it's not going to work. We need different kinds of learning models for different kinds of kids. And, and boy, that flies in the face of this instinct many legislators have. of Let's find a solution. Let's impose it. Yeah, and, and my guess is, uh, you know, your research on this one-size-fits-all model that has failed for so long has really led you to this research that you've done with your book project in 2017. Can you just talk about, um, you know, the motivation behind doing the research and, and writing that book and maybe share some of the success you found uh, as you were out looking at some of the great charter schools out there? Sure. Well, you know, this all started when Ted Gabler and I wrote Reinventing Government 30 years ago. Um, that book was looking at the entire public sector, including public education, and basically saying, look, the way we've organized this for the last hundred years with centralized hierarchical uh, bureaucracies um, and monopolies isn't working very well in the information age. It worked pretty well in the industrial era. It was probably the best we could do. But given the technologies available today, given the choices that people have become accustomed to in the marketplace, given uh, the education levels of the workforce today, uh, and given the challenges of a global marketplace where we're in competition with many other countries, um, the old model was breaking down, increasingly dysfunctional. And so we described what was emerging in its place, and it was a model that was and we were looking at local governments, some state governments. There were only back then a few pockets in the federal government where you saw this. Um, but it was increasingly common at the local level, which is most responsive to need. Um, the new model was more decentralized, fewer rules, um, more orientation to mission. Um, use competition more often rather than monopoly, letting different organizations compete to deliver services based on who could deliver the best bang for the buck. Um, it, it tended to be more market oriented using trying to, rather than just creating public programs, um, intervening, creating, changing the rules of the marketplace to solve problems if that was effective. Um, for example, a carbon tax. You know, the best way to deal with, with global warming would be a carbon tax. And back in those days, that's what everybody who was aware of the problem was talking about. Uh, that's not a public program. That's just changing the financial incentives in the marketplace so that investors move away from things that produce a lot of carbon. Um, at the end of the book, I... I I did the writing of the book, and at the end of it, I thought, you know, let's, let's give people some examples of what this new model would look like. So I said, let's take the three biggest public domestic problems we have, and I picked public education, health, and uh, public safety at the time, um, and let's just run them through these 10 principles that we had articulated in the book. Uh, 
things like competitive government, mission-driven government, decentralized, etc. And with education, what popped out was a system in which di districts don't operate schools, but they contract with operators to operate public schools. And those contractors compete for those contracts based on their performance. Uh, they're encouraged to differentiate their learning models, give families lots of choices, and then the, the families choose the schools and the money follows the choice so that the schools are in competition. And I thought, wow, that would work so much better. And, you know, I talked about it and pushed it and most people barely noticed the argument. Um, there was a fellow named Paul Hill who, uh, at the University of Washington who, who did and created the Center on Reinventing Public Education, did a tremendous amount of work to popularize this idea. And he and I worked together on a commission in 1999 uh, on the future, on, I'm sorry, the governance of America's schools uh, that was set up by the Education Commission of the States. Uh, and we proposed this kind of all-charter model. And boy, the reaction was just silence. I mean, we were so far ahead of where people were. It was like throwing a stone into a pond and having no ripples. <laughs> so I kind of put it aside. And then in 2010, uh, Mitch Landrieu was elected mayor of New Orleans. And I, had a, I was part of a small consulting firm. And, We'd done some work for him when he was lieutenant governor in Louisiana. Um, he called me up and asked me to come down and help them. So I, I spent six months consulting, trying to help them figure out, you know, the thousand problems that they had in that city. And that it, it, was, it was a mess. Where should they start? Where was the highest leverage? Help them really figure out how to be strategic and focus on the big, important things first. Um, but while I was there, I learned what was going on in the schools which is that they were gradually, the state had created a recovery school district to take over the worst schools in the state and turn them over to charter operators. And after Katrina, the legislature had voted to take over all but 17 schools in New Orleans. Uh, and so New Orleans was gradually turning its public schools over to charter operators. And by 2010, the result was already the fastest improvement in the country. So I thought, oh, wow, we've now got a We've got a living example. And it's working just like I thought it would. And then I looked around and realized Washington, D.C. was at the time something like 43% of their kids were in charters, and it was working great. And Denver public schools had embraced charters as part of district strategy uh, and also created uh, charter-like innovation schools in the district, which were just traditional schools that had more flexibility. Um, and Denver was one of the fastest improving. All three of those cities were among the fastest improving in the country. Chicago was the other one at the time because Arne Duncan had led something called Renaissance 2010 uh, in which they closed almost 100 failing schools and replaced them with 60 odd new schools, some of which were charters, some of which were district schools, some of which were contract schools, but they were all had a lot of autonomy. Uh, so. The model was emerging and working, and I thought, well, maybe people can hear the argument now, so I will write a book about it, because, you know, that's what I do best. I write books. <laughs> and, and, you know, the thing I really find fascinating about the charter school movement is um, 
you have these examples of success. You have data that shows that this model has been highly efficient. But still, the thing that continues to amaze me is there's so much pushback to this day on anything different than uh, the traditional school public school model. And you get a lot of pushback even having the, the charter conversation. Why is charter schooling such a dirty word in some places? Well, you have to understand how threatening it is to the teachers' unions. Not to teachers, because charter schools need as many teachers as district schools, but to their unions, because roughly 90% of charter schools choose not to unionize. They can unionize, but most of them don't. They tend to treat their teachers like professionals, not, in, not like industrial workers, and give them roles in helping to run the school. Um, which I think is the modern way to do it. I think that's what teachers need. They need more say in the direction of the school. Um, that's their biggest frustration. They're, they're put in their classroom, sh shut the door and don't bother us. But their unions, which control a lot of money, a lot of dues, um, are shrinking as charters are growing because most charters don't unionize. Now, the president of the American Federation of Teachers makes about a half a million dollars a year. The president of the uh, other national union, the National Education Association, I believe makes about 400,000 a year. And if you look at the payrolls around the country, there are dozens and dozens of, te of teachers union officials who make more than 200,000 a year. You're breaking rice bowls. You've taken away their membership and it's a threat. And about 10 years ago, they got very intent on pushing back and have gotten very good at it. You would be amazed at what the, the things they do. They fund, quote, research groups that just spew out anti-charter stuff that has no validity, but because they're a research group, often, sometimes affiliated with the university, you know, they get publicity, they get press, um, people take them seriously. They've, they fund magazines. One of the best magazines in the country is The Atlantic. The teachers unions over the last five years have given The Atlantic more than $4 million. They fund Atlantic events, for example, they're sponsors and fund them. And a publication, I'm a, an online publication on education reform, which has a partnership with The Atlantic, was told by an Atlantic editor, just don't send us anything about charters. And when I tried to, I used to write for The Atlantic regularly way back in the 1980s. When I tried to write about New Orleans for The Atlantic, they weren't interested and the explanations were just bizarre. And, you know, if you read The Atlantic, you're just not going to read anything positive about charter schools. They need the union's money. They spend hundreds of millions of dollars this way. And, you know, the last presidential cycle, they spent $64 million on candidates. So that's what's behind this backlash. They're spreading a lot of false propaganda. Um, and I'll be honest, there are some states that have screwed up charters. 
you know, that have made big mistakes. Michigan is one of them, where Betsy DeVos was part of the problem. Um, in Michigan, more than half the charters are for-profit, and they have too many authorizers, the groups that say you can get a charter and you can't. Uh, they let colleges do it, public colleges do it, and they let some other public institutions do it. And they don't hold the authorizers accountable. And some of these authorizers don't hold the schools accountable. If you let a, a failing charter school go year after year after year after year, you're just doing what the districts do. And your schools aren't going to be on average much better than the district schools. So in Michigan, they are on average a little better, but they're not dramatically better. Whereas if you go to a place like Massachusetts or New York State or Louisiana or Indiana, where they're careful about authorizing and they close the failing schools, you'll see dramatic differences between the charters and the district schools in performance, in test scores, in attendance rates, in teacher attendance rates, in graduation rates, in college going rates, in college completion rates, anything you want to measure. Yeah, and I, I, I'm of the belief as well that one of the challenges for any new movement is just getting the public to understand the difference. I think there's a vocabulary problem. People don't know the difference between a charter school, a magnet school. You hear terms like voucher schools, lottery schools. Uh, a lot of people don't even realize that charter schools are public schools, and they have to work uh, collaboratively with local school districts to even you know, do what they want to do. So how do we get that message out? Well, not all of them. Some, in some states, they're authorized by a state board, so they don't have to work with the local district. In that's others, they're authorized by districts. So that's another part of the problem. We have 44 or 45 different versions of chartering in that many states, plus Washington, D.C. Very good point. Um, but you're absolutely right. There was a big poll that came out. I think it was the one that Education Next uh, did and published this last summer showed that only 27% of the public realize that charters can't charge tuition. Another 30% or so thought they could charge tuition and all the rest had no idea. So yeah, only about half of them, half of the public realizes the charters are public schools. So we have a huge education job to do. And the problem is, the people who've created charters, many of them are absolutely committed to helping the children who need it the most. So where have they created the schools? In the inner cities. Right. You find much more awareness about what a charter school is if you pull urban dwellers, city dwellers. You go out to the suburbs where there aren't many charters and people have no idea, and the rural areas as well. Um, so, you know, that's something that will just slowly evolve, but, um, the backlash is real. It's, it's difficult. Um, and we have to just keep working on it and keep, keep putting out the accurate information about chartering and also keep cleaning up chartering in states like Ohio, where reformers have successfully amended the charter law about four years ago and it's having an impact and results are improving and in Michigan where we need to do that. And you know, one of the questions that I get, and you might get this as well is 
you know, okay, we, we understand and we recognize there are some great things happening in the charter school movement. Why can't we just replicate a lot of those great innovative ideas into our traditional school setting? How do you answer that question? Thank you for asking that, because that's one thing I wanted to talk about. Um, first of all, it is happening in a lot of districts, especially districts that have sort of gotten over their phobia about charters and realized we can work with these people. So if you go to Denver, you'll find a lot. I have a list in the book of about 10 things that charters pioneered that the district has picked up and done in its schools, like home visits over the summer before the school year starts. So you get to know the families, teachers visiting their students' homes. Um, that's just one example. Washington, D.C. as well. You know, almost half the kids go to charters in D.C. And the district, in response, has had to really embrace reform for more than a decade, starting in 2007, and has made great strides. And they, there's a lot of collaboration between the two. Um, and a lot of people going back and forth, you know, work their work in a charter school, then they'll be, go to the district office, then they'll go back to a charter organization. It, um, so it is happening in some places. But here's the key thing. I'm not just arguing or writing about chartering. What's important is not the word charter school. What's important is why they work in the places they work. And I believe they work for roughly five, five reasons. Most important is they have the autonomy. They can make the key decisions. People don't, re most people don't realize, but in a tr traditional big district, principals can't hire who they want, they can't fire who they want, they can't control their pay at all, they can't give them any financial rewards, they can't change the length of the school day, they can't change the length of the school year, and they're often stuck with the curriculum. So in what way are they really the school leader? I mean, no organization is going to be effective if its leadership can't pick who works there. So the key is, whether it's a charter or a district school, let the school leaders hire and fire, control the budget, control the length of the school day and year, the educational model, give them the reins. That's the most important thing. And then when you do that, you have to hold them accountable for their performance, which is number two. You know, so many district schools fail year after year after year after year, and nothing, nothing happens. Fortunately, it's changing in some urban districts, but charters have typically five years to prove that they're successful, that the children are learning uh, enough, staying up with grade level. And if they fail, if the authorizer is doing the job they're supposed to do, the charter is not renewed and the school closes. And in a place where the authorizer, where there are a lot of charter schools and the authorizer is intelligent, they don't just close them, they replace them with a better school. You know, that building is still used, but a different operator with different employees and often a different educational model. So accountability is number two. And you look at the data nationally, states where charters are held accountable for performance, their performance is very high. States where they are not held accountable regularly for performance, like Michigan and Ohio, their performance is not much better than district schools. 
So it makes a huge difference. Number three is um, diversifying the learning models. We talked earlier about how kids have, they have different learning styles, they're interested in different things, they come from different backgrounds. So in an urban area, you can create lots of different kinds of schools, Montessori schools, STEM schools, performing arts schools, uh, uh, project-based schools, um, even, even residential schools. In Washington, D.C., there are two charter residential schools for kids whose home life is so tough that they benefit from a residential model. Um, so the idea is we should push, whether it's a district or charters, lots of different models to meet the needs of the kids. And then the ones that are in high demand make, create more of them. The ones that are in low demand don't create more of them. Um, and then when you do that, you have to give the parents a choice. I mean, you can't tell a parent, oh, you live here, well, your kid goes to a STEM school. But if you moved here, your kid would go to a performing arts school. That makes no sense. So we, have, we need to give parents choices of different models. And then the final step, number five, is the public money, the taxpayer's dollars, should follow the child to the school of choice. And the school should be able to control that money, use it as they see fit, as long as they're held accountable. Uh, and that puts the schools in competition with each other, which keeps them all on their toes. Um, they all know, look, we have to figure out how to please these parents. Uh, so those are, those are the important things, and districts are beginning to do those things. And Denver has embraced much of that. Indianapolis has embraced much of that. Indianapolis public schools in the last five years, they have between 60 and 70 schools in the center city of Indianapolis. And in the last five years, they have either converted or created 21 schools that are called innovation network schools that are really just like charters. They're nonprofits. They, they have full autonomy, but they're held accountable. They have a five-year performance agreement, but they get district buildings, most of them, and they're part of the district for accountability purposes, their test scores and the like. So the district is changing its model from just operating schools to actually contracting with operators. And these are the fastest, these 21 as a group are the fastest improving group of public schools in that district over the last five years. So we're, we have to change, the districts aren't going away. We're not gonna replace the districts with charters. We have to change the districts. And so at the Progressive Policy Institute, that's what we're working on is, trying to work with districts that are interested in, in using this more modern model that's more effective. And you know, one of the things I get excited about when I learn more about you and I learn more about your work is any change model needs to be about doing what's best for kids. I mean, exactly. we can talk about all these different types of models, all these different kinds of schools, but if you're not changing, you know, you're going to have to take a, a really long look in the mirror. We have to create better schools for kids. And I say that with every episode, and I appreciate you keeping that at the forefront of all your decision making. Thank you. Thank you. And the, the other part of my answer to your last question is there's a limit to how much a traditional district can copy successful innovations because, again, the principal doesn't have control of who the teachers are. Um, and 
the length of the school day and the educational model. Uh, so, you know, these districts that try to innovate, small ones can do it. It's because they have a lot less bureaucracy. And, you know, if you only have four schools in your district, uh, two elementaries, a middle and a high school, everybody knows everybody. It's personal relationships. You have fewer rules and, and you can innovate faster. But boy, when you get these big districts where there are lots of rules and then there's the union there to enforce them all, Every time somebody tries to innovate, they, they run into a rule or, or a nest of rules. Um, and we've studied these, many, many districts to deal with this have created innovation schools or pilot schools, or you know they have different names for it, but tried to give their district schools more autonomy. And it helps, but they don't usually give them enough and their results are not nearly as strong as the charters in those cities, based on the cities that we've studied. So you really need to go to pretty full autonomy, as Indianapolis has, to get the real results. Well, I certainly want to thank you for your time. I could talk with you all day. You're a fascinating person with just a great background in both public policy and now education reform. If, there, if any of our listeners out there want to learn more, where can they go? How can they contact you? Where would you direct them to learn more about the charter movement? Well, our website is www.progressivepolicy.org. Um, and that's a good place to start. Our, my book is available. We also, on that website, we have a sort of condensed version of the book, uh, which you can read in an hour or hour and a half. Um, that's available for free, uh, plus many of our studies and articles. Um, and then there are lots of other good places to go. You know, one of my favorite publications is called the 74million.org, which is a website that is like a daily magazine about education reform. Chalkbeat uh, is another organization that has that publishes in a number of different cities about education reform. And uh, the Center for Reinventing Public Education at the University of Washington is a wonderful resource. Um, so there are, you know, there are many places to go, but uh, I hope people will learn more and open their minds to realize that, you know, the way we decided to organize public education over a century ago might not be the way that's most effective in today's world. <laughs> and I think that is an excellent way to close. And sir, again, thank you for your time. It's been a wonderful conversation. And as we wrap up this episode, folks, always remember, we say it at the close of every episode, do what you can in your school and community to create better schools for kids.